see everybody. You can kind of tell from the take 30 what it is we served each week. Um, the first week with the cookies, everybody was doing this from the pews. Um, the second week with the uh, French toast sticks, everyone's fingers were real sticky. Last week with the meatballs, you could tell people kind of picking the meat out of their teeth. And here we are again back doing this. So um, anyway, good to see everybody. Um, whether you're here in person, whether you're joining us online, or perhaps you're checking out a recording of this later in the week, it's truly a privilege for each of us to gather and worship our Savior in spirit and in truth. So last week, um, first part of the week, I spent a couple days at a pastor's conference at the Presbytery. And I learned a lot of really interesting things, but one of them I thought I'd pass along to each of you, and that is that this statistic that really kind of stuck in my head. Post-COVID, the church across the country, this is across the Presbytery, is seeing the average church attender come to church 1.2 times per month. So think about that. So that would be considered a regular attender if you come to church really just once a month. Now, we're not quite that low here at Four Mile. We do have 634 people who call Four Mile Church their home, and that's actually a pretty good number. We feel pretty good about that. We started out with about 2,000 in the database, and we've been kind of whittling it down, and we think we're down to around 634. But each week, we have only about 225 who gather for worship. So if you do the math on that, we're about 2.8 times per month, or about a third of the people are here at any given point in time. And that's not to make people feel guilty, I'm just pointing out the data. But what that tells me for us as a church is that we really want to be able to make sure that those 634 people have an opportunity to at least stay focused on Scripture as we are covering it each week, particularly since we kind of go line by line through, through Scripture. So um, that's why I'm truly so grateful for um, the fact that we've got this amazing tech team that is um, so dedicated and so expert in all their work um, because they make sure we never have an excuse uh, to miss a service. And so even if you're here today or you're watching online right now, um, I'd still encourage you at some point this week to go check out this very sermon again later in the week. It's only 20 minutes long. That's not even like part of your lunch break, really. But what a great opportunity to, again, kind of review everything that Paul is teaching us and particularly how it, how it pertains to each and every one of us individually. And so that would be my encouragement to you um, this next week because, again, we know everyone's busy. We know you're moving around um, and, you know, vacations or whatever else is going on. But there's still a great opportunity in this church to stay connected week in and week out. So as Cammie mentioned today, we're going to dig into that second half of the second petition um, of Paul's three petitions. And again, we're going to kind of take this all the way up through Thanksgiving. Um, last week, uh, it was in that blue part. It should be on the screen above me here. Um, in the blue part. And then um, that's what we're going to cover this week. And last week, it was the orange part. So let me just read this whole second petition together for us. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So as we saw last week, being rooted and grounded in love conjures the image of a tree and a building. Both require a foundation of sorts that roots and grounds these structures in the soil of love. And so Paul affirms, affirms again in this prayer this truth that love is what sustains the foundation of our church. 
and particularly our faith. In fact, elsewhere in Scripture, we learn that God is actually the very definition of love. So when Paul asks for strength, that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, back in that first petition, he was essentially asking for the love of God to dwell in believers' hearts. And just like in that first petition, Paul prays once again for strength in this second petition. But this is a slightly different kind of strength because it's the strength to comprehend with all the saints. So there's two parts to this. So this petition has to do, first of all, with comprehension, meaning it's about perceiving or it's about grasping God's vast love. Now to think about how we can even begin to understand that, I want to use this illustration that I got from, from Tim Keller. He talks about this toddler who has this truck, a toy truck, and he's playing with the truck, and all of a sudden the truck breaks. And you know what happens to a toddler when, they, when their favorite toy is broken. They just melt down, right? Well, the parents come over, and they sit down next to little Tommy, and they say to him, hey, this is a great time for us to tell you some news we learned just yesterday. We found out that a, a distant relative of yours just passed, and he just left you $100 million. Now, what do you think little Tommy is going to do? He's just going to start screaming all the more because he doesn't care about that $100 million. He doesn't, he doesn't have the ability to comprehend what that means for him. He could buy all the trucks in the world, right? He's just upset because his truck is broken. And that's the same way we are as Christians. We fail to comprehend the riches of God's love that we have access to in Christ. We just want to have a good day, but we are access to so much more. So how do we begin to comprehend Christ's love? Well, Paul says it happens, the second part here, along with all the saints. So it's not just happening in isolation within us, but it's also happening to us by virtue of the saints who are around us. In other words, we don't just need strength in our inner being as individual believers, which Paul has already prayed for, but we also need strength to comprehend God's love in the context of the entire church. Now, why is that? Because that's the way God designed it. We've already learned this. Paul already taught this to us. It's part of God's master plan that he set forth before the foundation of the world to unite all things in Christ. And that's his body, the church, not the building, the people. So we begin comprehending the love of God when we experience it in the fellowship of the church. Now let that sink in for a second. What does that really mean for us? And some of you are probably thinking to yourself, whoa, wait a minute. How's that going to happen? Because church people aren't always the best examples of love, are they? They can be pretty quick to notice an offense in another person. They're disposed to gossip, clearly self-righteous. They look down their noses at other people. So how can we ever comprehend God's love if we have to be dependent on church people? Well, that's the whole point. That's the beauty of this. And that's why Paul's praying for them to be strengthened first 
so that they can receive Christ, so they can be rooted and grounded in love. Because only God can transform individual saints into the loving body of Christ, his church. So for us to begin to fully comprehend or grasp God's love, we must be actively engaged in Christ's church. In other words, with the people. And that's why sporadic attendance, breezing in and out, whenever it's convenient, is so problematic for all of us. First, it makes it pretty difficult for you to be able to even grasp God's love when you're only here a couple of times a month. But second, this isn't just about you. This is about the church. We need you here, warts and all, because it's how we all get to experience God's love. Can you even imagine what those first two songs would have sounded like if we had all 634 people here this morning? We'd have blown the roof off this place. Can you imagine the encouragement to each other? So when you don't play your role that God has called you to in the church, the rest of us suffer. Did you know that? Did you know that each of us depend on you? We're all one body. We're all in this entire thing together. So the next time you're deciding whether or not to worship with us, it's important that you know we depend on you. And why is that? Because it's actually how we begin to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth of Christ's love. Now that's quite an amazing word picture that Paul paints for us here, isn't it? Many a commentary has attempted to qualify these dimensions with some additional analogy. In my studies, I didn't find any of them to be too terribly compelling, and it's also not clear to me why you add another analogy on top of already an existing one, especially when it's this good. So I actually like the way this guy named Wayne Barber explains it. He interprets Paul's word picture here as simply quantifying the vastness of Christ's love. It's basically just what Paul's been talking about throughout this entire letter that he writes to the church in Ephesus. When we look over the, back over these past three chapters, we can see it easily. Recall, we saw the breadth of it when Paul described that the gospel message extends to Jews and Gentiles alike. And back then, that was everybody, because you were either a Jew or you were a Gentile. So that is the breadth of it. And we saw the length of it when Paul explained that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So this reaches all the way back before the beginning of time. So that's the length of it. And we saw the height of it when Paul taught us that we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So it extends all the way up to the throne of God, to the third level of heaven. And that's how high it is. And we saw the depth of it when Paul described that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, he rescued us by sending his son to stand in our place, bearing the punishment for all of our sin, that we might be made alive together in Christ. And so that is the depth of the pit from which we've been saved. In other words, the dimensions, the breadth, the length, 
the height, and the depth. They convey the complete perfection of God's love. It fills all space as we know it. No matter which direction you look, you're going to find it. God's love is simply uncontainable. It's everywhere. And yet, it's something that must be comprehended or probed together with all the saints. Every last inch of it. We must search it across the vastness of its breadth. We must explore it throughout the extent of its length. Cross over it again as we examine its height. Investigate every inch of its depth. It's kind of like when you clean off an ear of sweet corn in the dog days of summer. You methodically work your way across the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth of that ear. And everybody's got their own little method of doing this. But you do it so that you can savor each buttery kernel until that cob is completely cleaned off. And that's the image we must have of the church as it savors and grasps the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, the vastness of God's love. Not only as he dwells in our hearts and we experience his mercy, his grace, his compassion, and we live out his truth, but also as he works within our brothers and sisters in Christ, and they then reflect his love back to us. That's huge. You see, the church affords us the experience of glimpsing into the loving eyes of our Savior whenever God uses one of our brothers and sisters in Christ to look on us in love. The church allows us to experience the warm embrace of our loving Savior whenever God uses one of our brothers and sisters in Christ to comfort us during those dark valleys of our lives. The church allows us to experience being upheld in the nail-pierced palm of our Savior's hand whenever God uses one of our brothers and sisters in Christ to lift us up out of that pit. Do you see how we can begin to experience the vastness of God's love through his church? And when we experience his love in this way, we begin to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. This is another one of those crazy Paul statements. And you may even been thinking to yourself, how can we know something that surpasses knowledge? Well, we've seen this a couple of times already in Paul's letter. These are those mysteries that he often writes about, those insights and those experiences that are otherwise impossible to grasp until God reveals them to us. It requires strength through God's Spirit in our inner being, enlightening us both individually and as a church. And of course, the word for know here in this context denotes an acquaintance from a personal engagement. So this affirms once again that this isn't head knowledge that Paul's referring to. It's experiential knowledge. It's tasting it. It's smelling it. It's feeling it. And it comes from experiencing God's love through the church. And that's actually perhaps one of the biggest problems with the church these days. It's comprised with people who have quite a bit of head knowledge about God, but they don't know him. Not in the sense of a relationship, not in the sense of having experienced his love. Edward Payson provides an interesting way to gauge our experience with or our knowledge of Christ's love. He says, 
Start by envisioning Jesus at the center of a circle and then ask yourself a couple of questions. Do you value Jesus' presence so much that you can't bear to be at any distance from him? You want to stay in that A-ring up there. Even in your daily work, you're coming and you're going. You're going to the grocery store. You simply can't help but speak of him. And you do it in the light of his countenance because you've experienced the rays of his love in your life. You're actually fearful of missing one beam of his light. You're seeking his face. Or maybe you're not content to live out of his presence, but you remain a little farther off in that B-ring, engaged here and there in various Christian callings, but your eyes are generally on your work and on your family. You're standing back at a distance, not wanting to fully engage in the experience of Jesus' love. And then there's a third category, the C-ring. It lies beyond the other two, but still within Jesus' life-giving rays. And it's here that Payson argues where the masses of church-going believers reside. It's why they only attend one time a month. It's because they're so engaged in worldly matters that they stand sideways to Jesus, looking mostly the other way, only now and then turning their faces toward the light. They're further out, among those last scattered rays, so distant, it's doubtful they come even within their influence. It's a mixed assembly of busy people, some with their backs even wholly turned against the sun. And most in this category are so attentive to their many possessions and their status in life that they spend little time with their Savior. So which category most describes us here at Four Mile Church? That's our question today. Are we seeking his face, pressing on down that narrow, well-lighted path by the power of the Holy Spirit? Or are we standing back, still stuck in number two? We placed our faith in Jesus, but we're hesitant to go much deeper. Or perhaps we're even standing sideways, only glancing occasionally toward the sun, still fascinated by the things of this world. And that's exactly why Paul prays that we might know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we might begin to comprehend the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth of Christ's love, especially in the context of the church. So now, practically speaking, you may be asking yourself, what next steps can we take to begin to know this, to experience it, to live our lives in that A-ring, so that we can start playing our roles effectively as members of Christ's body. Well, as we've learned over and over again from Paul in this letter that he writes to this church in Ephesus, you simply cannot manufacture it. It only comes from God. And that is why Paul is praying for it now, and that is why we must also be praying for it. But there is one thing we can do, and we see this in Scripture. We can put ourselves in the way of it, kind of like blind Bartimaeus did. First, we must seek it. We find over and over again in Scripture the call for us to ask, to seek, and to knock for those kingdom things. Jesus tells us in this book of Matthew to seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. And part of asking, seeking, knocking, of course, is asking. 
So what's our relationship with prayer? Is it a burden that we have to try to fit into each and every day? Or is it an immense joy, something we look forward to? Time speaking with Christ who dwells in our hearts, so much so that we remain in constant dialogue with him throughout the entirety of our day. What about our relationship with Scripture? When is the last time we picked up the Bible, not to read that obligatory one chapter a day, but to search the riches of his truth every single chance that we get? And what about our quiet time, where we meditate on Scripture and we pray and step with it, spending precious time with our Lord and Savior in the quiets of our heart? What about our relationship with the Holy Spirit? Do we respond to his nudges? Are we attuned to his counsel? When he convicts us through scripture, do we respond so that we can also experience his comfort? Are we being obedient to Christ's teaching? Do we hate our sin as much as he does? Or do we still try to get away with just as much as we can, keeping one foot squarely positioned in the things of the world? And then what is our relationship with the church? Is it just a building that we go to every now and then on Sundays? Is it just a place that we tune into? Or are we shouldering our part, contributing to Christ's body by supporting and building each other up? Have we responded to our commission? Have we ever in the entirety of our Christian faith life gone and made a disciple? Have we engaged in any of the pillars yet? so that we can employ the fundamentals of our faith in our everyday, ordinary life. Because these are the disciplines that help us begin to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. So I'd like to close with this quote from Edward Payson, writing from his deathbed at the turn of the 19th century. He writes, Christians might avoid much trouble and inconvenience if they would only believe what they profess that God is able to make them happy without anything else. Stop there for just a second. Do we believe that? That God is able to make us happy without anything else in our life, or absurdly happy, as we've been talking about throughout the series. They imagine that if such a dear friend were to die, or if such blessings were to be removed, they would be miserable. Whereas God can make them a thousand times happier Without them, to mention my own case, again, he's writing from his deathbed, God has been depriving me of one blessing after another, but as each one was removed, he has come in and filled its place. And now, when I am a cripple and not able to move, I am happier than ever I was in my life before or ever expected to be. And if I had believed this 20 years ago, I might have been spared much anxiety. As all of us age, we experience this. People pass away in our lives the older we get. We lose functioning parts of our body. It happens. And the question is, do we resent that? Do we look on that with anxiety and fear, or do we look on that as God is gonna fill all that? Because one day when this entire body returns back to dust, we are gonna be completely filled in his presence. I'm actually gonna talk about that next week. So do you see why it is that Paul prays for us to know, to experience 
along with all the saints, this love of Christ, that for our sake, the Son of God became a man to take on our sin and bear the penalty for all that we do, all that sin, by freely giving himself as a once and for all sacrifice for all our sins. Do we know? Have we experienced that kind of love? And so as we gather at the foot of the cross this morning, may we contemplate the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth of God's love. Before we receive communion, we always remind ourselves that there's never been the forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. And under the new covenant, Christ's blood serves as the means to our forgiveness. It's why before the Lord went to the cross to shed his blood for you and for me, he had a meal with his disciples, instituting communion between God and man for all time. And Paul instructs us in another letter that he writes that we're to examine ourselves before we receive the elements. And again, that's not to see whether or not we're worthy, because no one in here is worthy. But rather, it's to examine ourselves to see if we embrace and marvel at God's love, the immense price that was paid to save us from our sins. So let's take a few moments in the quiet of our hearts to confess our sins, to accept his forgiveness, and to recommit ourselves in humble obedience to his service. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 